to this week's sermon from King's Community Church. For more information about our church, including meeting time and location, visit kingscommunity.ch. Church, this is week three in our sermon series called Family Values, where we're walking through our six core values that motivate the mission of King's Community Church. We've already talked about give glory and share truth, and today we'll talk about our third core value, celebrating transformation. If you have a Bible or a Bible app on your smart device, I'd encourage you to turn to Luke chapter 4 in the New Testament. It's going to be about three quarters of the way through your Bible if you're, you're turning through one of the old-fashioned versions. Um, that's where we're going to be focusing our attention today as we think about celebrating transformation. Celebrating transformation. If you haven't heard the previous sermons about our core values, they're actually on our website, kingscommunity.ch, if you're interested in going back and learning about those. We'd encourage you to understand uh, what exactly motivates the mission of King's Community Church, and that's a great starting point. Well, as you've turned to Luke 4, I want to I direct your attention uh, to the fact that people have a natural disposition to celebrate transformation. We come into this world enjoying celebrating transformation. If you have ever seen a baby's first year book, you know that people celebrate transformation because they give you page upon page of moments that you need to have your camera phone out for because you're supposed to celebrate baby's first year of life in a myriad of different ways. Two of the biggest ones are walking and talking. Mobility and communication, we like to celebrate that. Think about a child taking their first steps. They're not even really good at this practice, right? As they're, as they're wobbling before gravity takes over and they hit the deck. But what do we do when those children take their first steps? We applaud, we cheer, we celebrate because they're being transformed into something new. I find it ironic that uh, just a, a few years after we get them to walk and talk, we celebrate this kindergarten graduation. And for a while, before I was a parent of a kindergartner, I wondered, why are we putting so much attention into kindergarten graduations? But after we get them to walk and talk, kindergarten graduation teaches us that we've now taught them to be able to sit down and be quiet. <laughs> we don't keep celebrating that they have the ability to walk into the room as they grow up and become better and better at it. But we find new things to celebrate as time goes on. And because we are all works in progress, God meets us where we are, but he loves us too much to allow us to stay that way. We talk about this Christian faith as a walk with God. We're learning to walk with him more and more. And in the midst of that, Christians should be among the best at celebrating because we have so much to celebrate, and we know about it. We have Christ. When a person or a group or a broken part of the world grows a little bit closer into the purpose for which it was created, we should be on the front lines to celebrate what's happening like parents with their cameras out because we believe God intervening in a broken world is what makes transformation possible. Because apart from that, when we're left to our own devices, we're in trouble. 
If there's one big idea that I hope we all walk away from this place with, it's that when it comes to the people of God, the church is not a place of refuge from the world. It's a people who exist for the sake of a hurting world. Let me say that again. The church is not a place of refuge from the world. It's a people who exist for the sake of a hurting world. And we celebrate that God has given us the opportunity to join him in this work of transformation that he's doing. Jesus declared and demonstrated the tr- that transformation that he was bringing. He talked about it and he showed people his ability to change life as they knew it. And we get a great picture of the inception of his ministry in Luke chapter 4. Let me begin reading for us in verse 16, excuse me, in verse 14, where it says, Then Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread throughout the entire vicinity. He was teaching in their synagogues, being praised by everyone. So this passage in Luke's gospel account is called historical narrative. That just means it is a real story about a real person and a real place in history. Jesus, the man who this story is about, is gaining a lot of traction with people. They didn't have Netflix or Hulu to watch to keep your entertainment. They didn't have a Kardashian family to focus their attention on. Rather, they had what was going on in the public square. And at this point in time in history, it was Jesus. And he was a polarizing figure. People knew that based on what he was preaching and doing, he was either going to be a hero or a train wreck. And in the midst of these crowds, there were different types of people that were following Jesus. There were the curious, the convinced, and the committed. The curious folks were just showing up to see what would happen when Jesus was around. The convinced folks would keep following him saying, I think there might be some merit to what he's doing. But then there was a small group of committed people who were following Jesus. And they were willing to to sacrifice their comfort and even stigmas that were attached to Jesus by following him. So it's interesting, if we're followers of Christ, we should ask ourselves, am I curious, convinced, or committed to the person of Jesus? Luke says of Jesus that he came in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's an important detail for us. When we read the New Testament in its context, we learn a lot about the nature of Jesus. We learn that Jesus can do nothing apart from the will of his Father. That's an important detail that is repeated over and over again in John's Gospel account. Jesus saying, I can do nothing apart from the will of my Father. We learn in the other Gospel accounts in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that Jesus is, in fact, always working in the power of the Holy Spirit. And this is why we say that God is Trinity. We have one God in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and they are always working together in harmony. But I believe that Luke is making this statement about Jesus coming in the power of the Spirit, and he reinforces it again in a moment for a different reason. And we're going to talk about that in a bit. So I encourage you to just put a pin in this idea of Jesus is working in the power of the Holy Spirit. And we pick up in verse 16. Jesus came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. This is the community that he was raised in. As usual, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. 
the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and unrolling the scroll, he found the place where it was written, the Spirit of the Lord is on me. There's that Spirit again. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He then rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down, and the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed on him. Jesus, a rabbi, comes into a place of worship called the synagogue on the Sabbath day, which is their holy day of their week. In our terms, that would be very similar to a preacher coming into a church service on a Sunday. That's the context of this passage. And Luke says this is just business as usual for Jesus. It's something that he does. It's par for the course. And he was handed a scroll from the Old Testament as he begins to preach. It's from the prophet Isaiah. And Jesus turned to a place in the prophet Isaiah, which he was going to read just two verses. And then he rolled the scroll back up, handed it to the attendant, sat down and said, Today as you listen, the scripture has been fulfilled. Shortest sermon ever. And all God's people said, amen, and then closed in prayer, and it was good. That's not what's going to happen today. Keep your seatbelt on. Even more exciting than the brevity of Jesus' sermon is the context of his sermon. See, this passage from the prophet Isaiah, um, chapter 61, verses 1 and 2, would have been a favorite passage for a lot of his listeners. In the midst of living in a broken and hurting world, this passage was reminding God's people that he was not finished with the world yet. So if you were a listener 2,000 years ago when Jesus preached this and he brought out Isaiah 61, you probably would have been excited too if you had ever experienced hurt or brokenness or pain. And people like to be reminded of God's goodness. And in two verses in a statement, Jesus suggested that he was going to transform the whole world. He was the one that was going to address all of the brokenness. He was the one who was going to relieve all the hurt. He was going to make right all the wrongs throughout human history. That's good news. We have to have a little bit of an understanding of the big story of the Bible to be able to celebrate the transformation that Jesus is talking about. The scroll that Jesus reads from is the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. And the prophet Isaiah was written roughly 800 years before Jesus stepped foot on the earth. Isaiah prophesied for over 40 years during his ministry, and he was speaking into the people of God who was called Israel at that time. And it was a very dark period for God's people in history. And when Isaiah gave these words to them, it said that there is nothing to equal Isaiah's tremendous vision of God and the glory in store for God's people until we reach the book of Revelation at the end of the New Testament. So Luke is highlighting Jesus' sermon that is talking about one of the sweetest promises that God has ever given his people. The Old Testament prophets, like Isaiah, often spoke about three things. The way that things were, the way things are, and the way that things will be. The way that things were is considered the creation ideal. This is before sin entered into the mix. 
The creation ideal is the way that God planned for the world to be, the way that things were before sin. The way that things are is the current state of the world, the world that we live in that is damaged by sin. And then the way that things will be is God's plans for redemption. See, God has been very gracious to people throughout history in the Bible recording exactly how he was going to work to overcome sin. So we should begin with what is the creation ideal? The creation ideal comes from the book of Genesis. Genesis means origins or beginnings. And in Genesis, we read the story of creation before there was ever sin. God created everything and everything was good. In the midst of that, God created people in his own image and people existed as image bearers of God and their purpose was to trust and obey God. They were given work to reflect God to the world and to represent God in the world. And humanity was good. And people's relationship to everything, the world and God was in harmony. There was no conflict in the creation ideal. People had a relationship to God, which was good. People had a good sense of identity as image bearers of God. People's relationship with one another was good. And people's relationship with the world was good. And we get to the end of Genesis chapter 1, this account of the origins, the beginnings of life and living. And we read this verse, Genesis 1.31. God saw all that he made, and it was very good indeed. Now what's special about that, that passage Genesis 1.31, is that there's no real modifying word that existed in the Hebrew language for that word very. So the sentence actually reads, God saw that he had made, all that he had made, and it was good, good indeed. So God created everything, and individually it was all good. But when it was working in harmony, it wasn't just good. It was good, good. Have you ever experienced good, good? If you're a golfer, you probably believe that a, a, good, a bad day of golf is better than a good day at work. And if you're a golfer, you've probably had a moment where you've hit that perfect tee shot. Everything felt right and you heard that ping off the club and it was good, good. If you're a runner, you've maybe experienced something called a runner's high. Now, this is something I've heard about and not experienced. Runner's high, even though you're exerting effort, there's a moment of euphoria when you're in the midst of that and everything is flowing and it's good, good. Achievers, people who like to make lists and scratch things off their lists, love that feeling of I've gotten this done, I've gotten this done. And when you've structured your day to be finished by 5 o'clock, and at 4.50, you're scratching off the last item on your to-do list. It is good, good. And if you're a parent who gets to the end of the day, and the kids are tucked in, and things are quiet, and you just have a little bit of energy left in your tank, whew, that feeling is good, good. The creation ideal was to experience that all the time. People and creation working in harmony with God. Life was meant to be good, good. What went wrong? We call this the damage of sin. When you think back to the story in Genesis, we have these two figures, the first two people that are talked about, Adam and Eve. 
And it wasn't just that Adam and Eve misbehaved. They chose to believe that God wasn't trustworthy and loving. It was an indictment on God. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie. God's design was that God would be over all things and humanity would be put in a position just under God, but above the rest of creation. And it was meant to be good. And God gave a rule. All of this is yours for eating. Don't touch that one tree. And what happened? The serpent, a created thing, entices Adam and Eve with a piece of fruit from that one tree that God said, don't touch. And all of a sudden, humanity decides that they know better than God. And they trust a created thing, flipping the order of the world upside down. Created things, humanity is under them. And they've put themselves, they've put themselves in a position of authority over God. That changed everything for humanity and for the world as we know it. Anytime we trust something to provide us satisfaction, wholeness, pleasure, or hope, more than we trust God, it's called sin. Sin is misplaced love and trust for created things to provide for us what only God can provide for us. Sin breaks our relationship with God and with all other relationships as well. Not only have we misplaced our worship, sin breaks our identity. It causes confusion. Before the fall and sin entered the world, it was said of Adam and Eve that they were naked and unashamed. And when they've sinned, they find themselves covering up, hiding, because they no longer see themselves as image bearers of God. The relationship with others is broken and conflict has entered the picture. This is the first marriage fight that we see in Genesis 3 when God says, what's going on here to Adam? And the first thing he does, don't do this, gentlemen, that woman that you gave me, she's the one that caused this to be fractured. So God looks at Eve and says, that, that serpent that you created, God, that's what caused this. And all these relationships are just broken one after the next. And because God is loving, but God is also just, there has to be consequences. And in the midst of sin, God gives this curse to the world. And people's relationship with the world is broken as well. And we exist now in a world with a broken relationship with God, a broken sense of identity, broken relationships with others, and a broken relationship with the world that we live in. Consider how this trickles into the life even of environments like this in the church when we should be directing our hearts to worshiping God. Our sense of worship is broken. We tend to think, what do I get out of a worship gathering rather than what does God deserve in these moments? Our sense of identity is warped where we were created in the image of God. Now we wander through life wondering what our identity really is. And we are so quick to put it in relationships, work, gender, sexuality, hobbies, uniforms, our image as a spouse or a parent, our successes and our failures, none of which compares to understanding our identity as the image bearers of God. We settle for so much less. Our sense of body image is fractured. Consider how much shame and obsession are associated with body image today. 
all types of relationships with other people are broken. We tend to approach people asking the question, how does this person make me feel instead of putting the interests and well-being of others before ourselves? The idea of sex, something God gave us as a gift before the fall, was also warped and perverted. It's used for self-gratification instead of honoring God by preserving it for the way he designed it to fulfill the purpose and pleasure that he designed it for. And now sex and sexuality are used to objectify other people. Sexual assault harms other people. The word pornography is actually based in this root word, porneia, which means to twist or pervert something. These are images of something God created to be good that have been twisted. Food is disrupted. What the devil used to ambush Adam and Eve, people have had an unhealthy relationship with ever since. You think about Some people struggle with too much food, others with not enough food. Some people use food for comfort. We look at ailments and allergies that come from food. It's been broken. Do you find it strange that we live in a world that has both obesity and food scarcity existing at the same time? It's because we have a fractured relationship with food. And now one that's going to hit home for a lot of people, work. Believe it or not, we were given work before the fall. We were given a purpose before sin entered the world. And when we think about our heavenly home, we will have jobs to do there too. But some people don't like the idea of that because ever since sin occurred, work has been one of the biggest pressure points for people throughout history. Everything has been damaged by sin. Literally, everything about life and living was twisted and perverted when we exchanged the truth about God for a lie. All that was good, good was lost. But by the grace of God, that's not the end of the story. The good news is that all along, God hasn't been finished with his creation. When he could have been justified in destroying everything and starting over, he chose to work through the brokenness. The prophets who existed in the Old Testament knew the creation ideal. They knew the current state of the world that was damaged by sin. But what really set the prophets apart was their God-given ability to see how God was going to redeem the world. And that's what we see Isaiah talking about in chapter 61, this sermon that Jesus is preaching. In this case, Jesus reads the prophet's promise that the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This passage was prophesied about the Messiah, the chosen one of God who would transform the world. He would possess the spirit. He would be the bearer of good news. He would bring release to the oppressed, which is everyone under the curse of sin. This is good news that Jesus is preaching. And in verse 19 of Luke, we see Jesus proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the year of Jubilee, as it's recorded in the Old Testament book of Leviticus. This was a time that was supposed to be good for all of people in creation, This year of jubilee that was talked about in Isaiah that Jesus has said is now fulfilled in him 
was supposed to be a great time of peace that culminated with a massive celebration. People understood that the mission of the Messiah was going to address the physical brokenness of the world and their felt needs as well as the underpinning problem of sin. The Messiah was going to change the physical status of those who were poor, captive, blind, and oppressed. But he was also going to be able to meet their greater need by transforming their spiritual poverty, captivity, blindness, and oppression that was caused by their own sin. Jesus was going to heal the outside, but he was also going to heal the heart. And when Jesus sat down and the scripture had been fulfilled, he is beyond the shadow of a doubt claiming to be the one who fulfills it. That's an important point that the Gospels of Jesus make over and over again, that he was not just a good teacher. He referred to himself as the fulfillment of his teaching. Jesus is saying, I am God's chosen one. I am the one who will undo sin. I am the hope of the world, and I am right here before you. And how do God's people that are in their synagogue service respond? Well, we'd like to think that after Jesus preaches the best, shortest sermon in history by telling the good news and then saying, I am the Messiah that fulfills this good news, that the crowds would have erupted with joy and said, Jesus, that was an awesome short sermon. And they would have applauded. And then they would have all gone up and gone to Chick-fil-A together. Because in this story, we see the Messiah makes it so that there is no more peanut allergies. And at this point in time in history, before the resurrection, Chick-fil-A would have been open because the Sabbath was on Saturday. So that's what they would have done, right? That would have been pretty great. But it couldn't be farther from what actually happened. They loved the passage that Jesus preached. But when he made the claim that he was the fulfillment of that passage, their response was, isn't this Joseph's son? See, Jesus is preaching in the town where he grew up. They saw his family. They knew the stigmas attached to his family. He was born of an unwed mother. They were refugees. They were not highly praised in society. And all that said, Jesus is just the son of a carpenter. How could he be the Messiah? Jesus didn't look like what they wanted the Messiah to look like. So the people rejected him. They love the passage that Jesus preached, but they fail to love the one whom the passage is about. So I come back to that question I asked earlier. When you read about who Jesus is in the Bible, and you're here as some sort of a follower, are you curious or convinced or committed that Jesus is who he says he is? Because he has the ability to change everything about life for you if you follow him. But that's not what these people do. They reject him. It says that they wanted to kill him. They drove him out of town. And in some mysterious, sovereign way, he eludes this crowd that wants to destroy him. And how does Jesus respond? Does he turn around and curse them? No. 
you read the rest of Luke's gospel account, and Jesus went from his hometown to neighboring towns, proclaiming the good news and healing those who had needs. Jesus had the authority and the ability to transform the world in an instant, but he wouldn't be rushed. He had grace on those who persecuted him, and he went forward telling people the good news of the kingdom that he was ushering in all the way up to the cross and the resurrection where he conquered the curse of sin. So he didn't only proclaim good news to the poor, he became good news to the poor by what he did. We see that throughout the rest of the New Testament, personal transformation happens when people encounter Jesus. Personal transformation happens when people encounter Jesus. We see selfish people turned into servants, thieves transformed into generous givers, malicious, angry people prone to fighting become agents of God's grace and forgiveness. Alcoholics and addicts are changed into spirit-filled people. Wherever he meets you, he loves you enough to greet you, but he also loves you enough to allow you to be transformed because he loves you too much to stay the way you came to him. Conversion is a prerequisite to transformation. Individual transformation begins with this rebirth, born again through faith in Jesus Christ. When we know Jesus in a personal way, and begin to tap into him as the Lord, as the creation ideal has instructed us to do, it begins to transform every dimension of life for us. Don't settle for conversion when God has a plan for you for transformation because you're selling yourself short of enjoying the abundant life that he wants to provide for you. And transformation doesn't stop with our conversion. It just begins there. Just like we don't stop celebrating the transformation of a child that learns to walk and talk, we celebrate transformation and then we keep investing. Take more steps. Take more steps. You have the ability to do so much more than you could imagine. And that's the purpose of church community too. We need to be integrated into each other's lives to teach us how to walk, but then to keep walking as we go throughout life. And church, think about this power that we're afforded. Individual transformation leads to churches being transformed. And when churches are transformed, communities are transformed. Again, I will say the church is not a place of refuge from the world. It's a people who exist for the sake of a hurting world. And if you believe the old adage that that hurt people hurt people, you should also believe that transformed people want to be a part of bringing transformation to people. Earlier, I mentioned to, uh, to put a pin in this idea that the, Jesus is working in the power of the Holy Spirit. When we ask how do we participate in transformation once we've been converted, once we've stepped into right relationship with God, it comes back to this idea of the power of the Spirit to transform us. Luke told us that Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. Later on in verse 18, Jesus begins his sermon by reading the passage, the Spirit of the Lord is on me. 
Luke wants us to be aware that although Jesus is never walking outside of the power of the Spirit, everything he does comes from the power of the Spirit. Jesus preaches the good news in the power of the Spirit, and then Jesus goes and participates in bringing the good news to life through the power of the Holy Spirit. Luke beats that drum in his gospel account because in one other book of the Bible that he wrote, he's going to beat that drum again. See, Luke wrote two books of the Bible, Luke and Acts. And Luke tells us about the life and ministry of Jesus. And Acts begins to tell us of the life and ministry of the church. And as Jesus' ministry begins in the power of the Holy Spirit, as we read in Luke chapter 4, consider how Acts begins in chapter 1, verse 8. Jesus is talking to his disciples And he says, when the spirit comes, you will receive power and you will be my witnesses. Where? In Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and even to the most remote places of the earth. And then the rest of the book of Acts and the rest of the New Testament and the rest of human history up to the present is God's people moving by the power of the Holy Spirit to show and tell the gospel of Jesus Christ. The same power that led Jesus, the same power that raised him from the dead is here for us to experience transformation and to bring transformation everywhere we go. What does this mean for us? I I believe we need to think about transformation on three levels. I believe we need to take this and and not just learn a little bit about the scriptures, but to be transformed by the scriptures and by the Holy Spirit, first and foremost, in trusting Christ. Again, transformation begins with conversion. God didn't come to make us better versions of our old selves. He came to make dead things alive. So we have been transformed and been given a new identity and a new life as image bearers of God. We're called to continue that transformation, and it doesn't happen alone. So the second thing I think we need to focus on is celebrating what God has done in our own lives through the community that he's put us in. I was just reflecting earlier this week on 17 years ago right now how lost I was. Do you take time to reflect on how much Jesus has already transformed you? Sometimes in day-to-day life, it's hard to see that transformation happening. But when we zoom out and see bigger segments of our story, we can see that God has brought us through something to change us. And when we celebrate our transformation in the context of Christian community, we have people in our lives to point us forward to keep going. If you don't already have that, I could not encourage you more if you're going to call King's Community Church your home church to do more than just show up on Sundays and get your tank refilled a little bit, but be involved in our community groups ministry, these groups that meet in homes throughout the week to take more time to learn our story, each other's stories, and the story of God so that we can bring them together. If you're not in a community group, either fill out a Connect card 
or talk to me or talk to someone at the welcome table after the service. We want to get you involved in that in order that you can experience more and more transformation in your life and celebrate it in the lives of others as well. But there's one more thing. Transformed people bring transformation into the world. As, as we bind together as transformed people, the world should be a different place because of it. What if the church showed the world an alternative story of a transformed life that we lived out missionally? And instead of just thinking about the transformation that happens in places like this or in homes and community groups, what if we began to see the world as the arena for which God's transformation is taking place everywhere? What if we binded together to address the brokenness? I believe that's exactly what God wants for us. I believe that we have the ability to tap into the power that raised Jesus from the dead. I believe we have the potential to bring God's story to life everywhere we go. That comes when we are in the habit of celebrating transformation. What happens in our own lives what happens in our church community, and by the grace of God, the world around us will be changed if we take that message and that mission with us everywhere we go. Church, let's pray together toward that end. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the the good news. We thank you that while we were still sinners, when we had exchanged the truth about you for a lie, that you came And you didn't just come to preach good news to us. You came to demonstrate good news through through healing, through renewing. And then you were transformed into something you never were, sin on a cross, in order that we could be transformed into brothers and sisters, adopted sons and daughters because of the blood that you shed. God, help us to experience transformation. Help us to experience it in community and help us bring transformation to the world for your glory and for the good of others, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.